Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there. So this is Stop and Search, Episode 3 on a cast, and we're on the Distraction Pieces Network. So here we go. straight into the episode because I do a bit of an introduction on the evening because as you know we do live events. Now on this one we are calling it Drugs That's Entertainment and the reason why is because of the associations which we speak about within the episode so you'll get to hear that. Um, But my chairman Neil Woods he has a memoir out on the 18th of August called Good Cop Bad War which is about his life as an undercover drugs detective. So if you've ever seen The Wire, if you've ever seen those undercover cop detective films this is the real life version this is the guy that did that and I know Neil Woods personally and my word what a story he's got so we can go straight into that and you'll hear Rufus Hound and J.S. Raffaelli so I'll speak to you at the end right then hello everyone this is the third episode of Stop and Search this is our podcast with Leap UK and as tonight you might know, Rufus Hound was with us and J.S. Raffaelli, who wrote Neil's memoir, which we're going to be speaking about in a minute. So that kind of leads us in what we're talking about tonight. We've framed this around drugs and entertainment. We're pretty much entrenched in drug culture. We've got Trainspotting, we've got Trainspotting 2 that's coming out. When you look at the books and the films, you can't get away from drug taking and drug use. So why is it we still can't get to grips with it in society? Why can't we have a proper conversation? Leading into this, we're going to have Neil Woods who can come round and join us. He is the chairman of Elite UK, but also Neil was an undercover uh, detective for 14 years of his 23-year service in the police. And his memoir is out on August 18th, if that's right. Do you want to say a couple of words? Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. You're a little bit bound as well, what you can and can't say. This is the thing, isn't it? We don't want to give too many spoilers away because Neil's story is so, so good. I can give some away. I can give some away because this is coming out on the 8th of August, isn't it? <laughs> Just plug the book. <laughs> that, that, that is wonderful advice. It, it's probably not being picked up by the microphone, but Rufus Hound is shouting, for, shouting at the back, plug the book. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a great idea. That's the funny thing with Neil. He starts off with one story and then it ends up with, yeah, and then I caught a gangster, and I bought a kilo of speed, some weird punchline to it. It's like, you're like no one I've ever met before. And telling this story, 
is J.S. Raffaelli, who's done Neil's memoir that's with us today. And you spent, well, a good few evenings together, didn't you, going over this? And so if you come round, J.S., give him a round of applause. Hi. And then our final guest, which you might have heard heckling at the back there, is Mr. Rufus Hound, who you saw from the Colt High. Let's a round of applause. Thanks for Thank you very us, much. Is it okay to do drugs while I'm up here? You go for it. Thanks very it's much. It's kind of a requisite. Cheers. I think Robin Ince was just sitting there supping all night. He ended up having a good old <laughs> So, guys, thanks for coming. Thanks for doing this. Thanks uh, for having uh, us. Let's start off by the associations. So, you and I met over Richard Bacon, if you can remember <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, we were spit-roasting Richard Bacon. As you do. <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't remember. How did we meet? You was on a programme late night called Richard Bacon's Beer, Beer and, and Pizza. Pizza yeah. And one of the... It's kind of like a reverse Room 101, I suppose, you in, a, in a weird yeah, sort of way. Yeah, it was be a fan about a thing you love, or, or in a category. And one of the questions Made was... Made for... ITV4. <laughs> That's right, everyone. <laughs> the big money. And I think one of the questions was, if you was Prime Minister for a day, what would you do? What, what law would you make? And you said... Was it legalise all drugs? Legalise all drugs. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's quite a drop-in to a light entertainment show. <laughs> Remember, ITV4. <laughs> the three people who heard that thought it was fucking revolutionary. <laughs> Me being one of them, so I got straight on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter being the ever great tool. Straight away hassled Rufus, because that's the thing with drug policy. Once you see a celebrity that speaks out on this, you're like, quick, we need them. We need to get some kind of voice. So I said, you know, would you do an interview with us? That's turned into a yes, which was supposed to be a written interview. And then you turned into the film. Yeah. And the brilliant thing about that, if you saw that small clip of me, I was in a play in Chichester. Now, does anybody here know Chichester. It is basically the Tory party conference turned into a town. <laughs> so there was a big theatre, and, and then these guys turned up, and I was like, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm rehearsing during the days and performing at night. It's full on. But I might have, like, two hours one afternoon. So they turn up to where I was staying, these digs, and they're like theatre digs, so they're not all that grand. And they went like, well, it'd be, it would look nice if we filmed it outside. So I'm standing in this little alleyway with a film crew, like, because of the, you know, conditions of filming and whatnot, talking quite loudly about how we should legalise all drugs, just with blue rinse after blue rinse after blue rinse walking past, just looking like they wanted me to die on the spot. Cut to you just going like, oh, can we do that again? Can we do that again? So... Yeah, I remember that. That was pretty much the size of it. I was, uh, I was having a light screen to Rufus's face. And the, 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 the comments that were coming past us, it pretty much insinuated that we got a bit of a way to go on drug policy reform. <laughs> yeah, it seems that maybe the groundswell of popular opinion in Chichester uh, is, is maybe not quite running in the same way our stream runs. Pretty much. <laughs> and then you two guys, how, how did that association come about, if you can remember? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a, Neil was obviously a cop, as you've heard, and has this pretty incredible story. Uh, I'm a writer with a music background, and uh, I think my agent read a thing with Neil in Vice, a little article that they'd done, and just went, there's a book there. And he's a clever guy, and he hooked us up, and we very quickly just hit it off, um, wrote this book, which is coming out. August 18th will be available at all fine bookstores, available for pre-order right now. 
Um, and I, I guess I was very taken with Neil's story because it's, it's hardcore. It's just hardcore. He's done some really fucked up stuff. Um, and I, I always, I've been told it's okay to swear on this. <laughs> um, and I'd always, I guess, come from a very basic libertarian position of like, drugs should be legalized because fuck you. Because don't tell me what to do. I can choose to do drugs if I want. You want us to tell me no? Up yours. Um, and then that position, as I spoke to Neil, I actually started actually doing some research because I'm a geeky guy and I got into it and hearing Neil's story. And it, that feeling deepened quite a bit. And now I'm a sort of fully signed up member of this cause because I think it's really important. Having read the statistics about the US, the UK, and around the world, now I'm, I'm into it in a much more serious way. And I think this is a really serious issue and this needs to happen. It was in Vice, wasn't it? It was a, a friend of ours called Michael Allen that wrote your uh, kind of a bit of a bio piece, wasn't it, on you? And it, it did really well, didn't it? It still comes out now. It still surfaces, doesn't it, that piece? And, and do you find that when you do have that exposure, the people gravitate towards you and go, oh, my God, this is a, an amazing story. This should be on the screen. What do I find that? Um... Well, I did, because Adam contacted me by tweet and said, uh, really, I really think there's a book in this, and there's a great writer I want to hook you up with. Um, which was good, because uh, I'm, I'm no wordsmith. You know, I can tell a story, and he can record it, and, uh, and, and he just, JS has done a brilliant job of writing it. But, um, yeah, it, it was an interesting time doing the recording, because um, I had to sort of put a lot of it out of my mind. But, um, I'm sorry, JS, but you gave me nightmares with all your questions, and... Yeah, because you put it's a lot my job. of these... Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Because you put a lot of these things to bed, you know, you, you try and blot a lot of stuff out, and uh, there is some nightmare stuff in there. So, yeah, you, it, it cost me a few weeks' lack of sleep, you know, remembering all this stuff. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's turned out... It's an accurate, accurate version of what happened, and that's good, I think. Is that true, then? Is it recounting those stories? Is it more difficult than what we would... Think. I mean, I, I think it would be pretty damn awful, but you've been through it. Describe it. Well, well, it's an interesting thing. I, I suffered the symptoms of PTSD at the end of my career, and um, you know, I had uh, legal medication from the doctor to make to make me better for a few months. Um, I, I got better, you know, the support of family and all that kind of thing. But a few months ago, I met a fascinating guy called Ben Griffin, who's uh, used to be in the SAS, and he now runs the British. Veterans for Peace, and he's a campaigner for peace, and he's a fantastic guy. And I had a really good chat with him about PTSD because he looks after, you know, he advises lots of veterans with PTSD. And he he gave me the idea. He told me about this thing called moral damage, which exhibits all the same symptoms as PTSD, but it fits what affected what how things impacted me far far more because. You know, I've had these uh, life, th these near-death experiences. You know, I've had a sword to my throat, a knife to my groin, various, various other things. You know, I've been spat at, stripped, whatever. But those aren't actually the things. That, are, that Those are not the memories that actually haunt me. The memories that haunt me are the faces of people like, for example, the young lady I just talked about, the, um, you know, s s addicted to heroin and being forced to 
sell a body for it, or, or various other people that, that I manipulated and who basically suffered as a result of policing the war on drugs, that, that, that it was my hand in it, you know. So, um, so it's it became clear to me that it's, that it's moral damage that I suffered from uh, rather than PTSD. Um, so, yeah, it was a really... It was quite traumatic to actually recount it in the sufficient detail for a, a writer such as J.S. to put down on paper, so, yeah. And we've also got release here tonight. If you, uh, We've got some little pamphlets down here who pretty much are at the coalface of this, aren't you, that are dealing with the very people that Neil were talking about. So if you go to, is it release.org, is it? If you go there, honestly, check it out, because they need all the support. Like, just like anybody in drug policy, we all need support in this. So kind of going slightly off on the track, was it along those lines, Rufus, that made you say those comments on Richard Bacon's Beer and Pizza Club? <laughs> Uh, was was it or was it more of a, a libertarian point of view? What what on earth made you say that? Um, <clears throat> it was a mix of a couple of things, really. I, I, I would say that libertarian argument runs pretty strong in me. Like I think all laws should boil down to if you do this, it hurts someone else. But everything that isn't that, knock yourself out. Like that seems to me to be the rule of law that's that's abidable by. <laughs> Terrible grammar, but, you know. So, I'd also read some stuff by Johan Hari, um, and if you haven't read his book, Chasing the Scream, I would hardly recommend that. Um, but it was actually, he had a, a blog, and he, he um, amassed a group of articles that he had written about drug policy. And the thing he wrote, and it was like someone switching the light on, in terms of the idea of drugs and legalisation and whatnot. And he just listed historical examples of things human beings had taken to go nuts. Like, so the Laps would drink fermented reindeer urine because reindeers could eat psychotropic mushrooms that were poisonous to human beings but when they passed through the reindeer system, the urine contained all of the psychotropics, but without the venom, without the poison. So then they would catch the reindeer urine, ferment it, and drink that. Incas, Peruvians, catching toads and licking the... You know, inducing a panic reaction in toads. And they go, I'm like, the whole history of humanity is doing some truly fucked up stuff in order to have a thing that makes your brain go... Doo -doo 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 -doo. So if we have had that from pretty much out of Africa, mitochondrial Eve, if, if we can see ourselves as a biological computer, we run on ones and zeros, electrical pulses on and off, same as computers do, the desire humans have to occasionally run new software... <laughs> to try a new OS just for a couple of hours to see what happens is like at the core of, of the human experience. That's why I say, do you mind if I do drugs? Because anything that induces a, 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 a mental position that is different to the one you have without any kind of stimulus at all is a drug. And that was the point at which I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> right, got it. So basically the problem is the nature of the substance and the 
volume of that substance. Because I absolutely know and work with functional drug addicts. And they are either functional alcoholics or uh, habitual marijuana smokers. In the business that I work in, cocaine, you know, is, is kind of like keep going, rock on. And these people are like smashing themselves to pieces three or four times a week minimum. But they're getting the job done and they've got families and friends and meaningful relationships and they play a productive part in society. But that's largely because most of my friends are middle class mm-hmm. or upper middle class. So they have the money to give themselves the cushion. And then once I'd made that connection, I was like, oh, shit, I get it. This is a way of basically manipulating poor people. And then you look at the American example, and you're like, oh, shit, this is a way of manipulating black people. And then once, you know, you... and, and you know, you made mention of that documentary, The Culture High. I filmed for that with like half a dozen kind of half-assed examples. But then you invited me to the, you know, the premiere at that film festival. And I went along to that. And you, you watch The Culture High. And by the end of it, man, I just wanted to walk into every home in the country and say, sit down and you're not allowed to leave until you've watched this. Because it makes that point. Look. Would it not be better, would everybody in here agree that their lives would be better if they meditated every morning, ate five portions of fruit and vegetables, ran for an hour, phoned their parents and their loved ones, and went to bed at around about half past eight? (laughs) Would we all agree? I mean, I know, I know that would make my life better. How many of those things do you think I do? (laughs) None, you hope. (laughs) Well, madam, your hope wins out because that is exactly right. Like, if we were were capable of this kind of uh, puritanical existence, then I, I, you know, like, okay, maybe there is room to demonize running different software on your computer. But I actually see that life is hard and... And I think that it's incomplete in so many ways. And that, frankly, the society that we have created and that we operate in does not really allow for feelings of failing or disconnection, whilst at the same time driving forward the idea of either winning or failing and ever more in an ever more disconnected fashion. Once you think that that is the blueprint of the society we live in and that people are finding refuge in those drugs... For some, it's a momentary refuge, and for others, life is too horrible and the refuge has to be semi-permanent or permanent. Well, then it went wrong for you and you need our help. What doesn't help is being sent to prison and there, where you will find other drug addicts and, I think we all know by now, a ready supply of much stronger drugs. It's also the problem with decriminalising cannabis, frankly, is that you decriminalise it, but you don't legalise it. So what happens? Kids go, oh, great, I can take cannabis now. And where do they go? To dealers. And what does a dealer want to sell them? Cannabis or heroin. (laughs) Because you can make shitloads of money on heroin. People really dig heroin. So, you know, like the the emphasis as a salesman, as a self-employed businessman, is, okay, kid, welcome to the gang, but have you tried this one? This one's really good. That all of those issues seem to me to be part of 
an authoritarian, Victorian idea of how you govern and police a society. And those ideas are outmoded. We live in the age of social media. We live in the information age. We live in a time where we don't need nanny telling us what to do and what we can and can't do. And yet, frankly, because we are essentially governed by the old, because old people vote and young people don't, there is still that sense that nanny knows best. You talk about facts. If we were governed in a way where facts played any part in our society, we would be way better off. That doesn't happen. In fact, you can get fired for saying so from the government's advisory board on drugs, as David Nutt showed. You get sacked for it. Yeah, exactly. What did he say? He said, ban horse riding, legalize drugs. Yeah, or just, I suggest, as speaking as David Nutt suggests, maybe we should just take an evidence-based policy, bang, fired, done, just for suggesting that. You know, when I, when I read that, I was still in the police, actually, when, when, um, when David Nutt came out with those statistics about how much da- more dangerous horse rising was than, than MDMA. I was the parent of two teenagers, two young, young teenagers at the time, and I was absolutely terrified they'd want to get into horse riding. <laughs> absolutely terrified. And then I remembered I couldn't afford it. Yeah, yeah. Which, 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 of course, is the point, reinforces the point you've just been making, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Formula One as well, like the most dangerous sport. But, you know, the only people getting into Formula One have got money. And this, yeah. is, this is the perverse thing we've got of our drug laws, is the, is the, the risk perception. We think that certain things are fine and other things aren't. And uh, just picking up on decriminalisation, what you were saying, because I know we've got an organisation here that really advocates decriminalisation, and it's because, again, you're faced with the consumer of drugs, aren't you? And that's something that we definitely support, isn't it? Decriminalisation with a view, to our view, to going towards a regulated market so that you've got something that's got some degree of regulation and safety. See, I can kind of support that if you're talking about weed. Because, like, decriminalising weed just means you can grow some at home and the police aren't going to come and repossess your house and shoot your dog and take your kids off you, right? So decriminalise weed because you can grow it and that, that sort of makes sense. I think that the problem with that is that you're throwing everything into a grey area where, just to provide the argument that by saying something is illegal, you put people off doing it. I think that... That argument, absolutely, as we know and is proven time and time again, definitely doesn't work. But it probably does work for a few people. I think it was around about, if you're going to, about back of the envelope, 2% that were persuaded. Other than that, it's pretty much on record and evidence that it's got absolutely no deterrent effect Sure, whatsoever. but I will, I will buy that you're going to put two people off, 2% of people off that, right? So there is at least... An upside to it. But what about if that 2% was in more harm's way? Jason, you're arguing with a man who already agrees with you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's I mean, for the play devil's advocate all you want. Like, absolutely, the, the idea is bullshit. But I'm saying, if you're going to have a, a, pro, uh, a policy of prohibition, then that puts off 2% of people. Great. Well, then your policy serves 2% of people. I think if you decriminalise, then you're even losing that 2%. (laughs) So the whole thing is just fucking nonsense. Like, we have policies of regulating alcohol. And and this, for me, is always the, the, the full test, frankly. If you talk to anybody who is in favour of prohibition and they are not talking about criminalising booze, get the fuck out. You, you, what, what are you talking about? Either have like the absolute policy where anything you put in that makes the roundabout 
start kicking around, have that be illegal, or move towards a system where you're able, hopefully, to regulate and police who has it, who has access to it, how often and when. Careful, man. Theresa May will hear you. She'll oh, do it. She'll I mean, do it. Careful, mate, man. You'll fuck it up for everyone. Fucking hell. Like, if you're into drug decriminalization, uh, you know, uh, evidence-based policy and, and all of that, Theresa May as Prime Minister is a... F- it, 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 I mean, it doesn't get much worse, does it? Who wants to go with the Theresa May story of the uh, International Comparators Report? Because we got evidence that it's not going to be a good few years under Theresa May's... Well, during the coalition, the Home Office actually commissioned um, a report which they travelled, some experts travelled around the world and looked at different countries' attitudes to drugs and in particular how they enforce their drug laws. And... um, it was a very, very thorough report. There's probably the most thorough report that's, that's been done of its, of its kind in, in Europe. Um, and the conclusion, the inescapable conclusion of that report was that no matter your punitive measures, how, whatever harsh your punitive measures were, it had no impact on drug use at all. So the talking tough uh, politics that bounces back from the left and the right, both, both, both uh, sides of the political divide do the same kind of rhetoric stepping up the war on drugs all the time to try and outdo each other with how tough they can be, it's literally a waste of time. You're, li- you're just, just making life harder for a lot of people for no benefit at all. That's what we're doing on this podcast. We want to open up that, that magic box that we get to see at Westminster, don't we? We, 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 you know, we travel in the circles of Parliament. We see what's being said behind closed doors. We can't go on record with any of it, can we? Because it's just so, I don't know, whistleblowy. But, like, they remember they did that thing? They sent an undercover reporter into Westminster a while ago with a, a you know, the um, little, uh, look like, makeup dabbers that they have at the airport that they run on the inside of your bag. And, run a, and they ran them on the top of all the loos in Westminster. <laughs> and something like 60% of the loos had coke on the top of the system. Like, what we have got, do not lie to yourself is a policy in this country, whereas if you're rich, enjoy those drugs. And if you're poor, fuck you. That is British drug policy. And any facts, statistics, or, you know, stories you have that counter that, it all boils down to old-slash-middle-aged-slash-white-slash-Tory voters just think drugs are icky. And that's what it boils down to. They're not. It's not a, a thought-through choice. It's, don't like that. No, 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 no. That's, that is British drug policy in a nutshell. It's, it's got no bearing on facts at all. Uh, Jason just mentioned we do actually meet up with some politicians. And I, uh, I met with a very senior um, opposition MP. And, and I'm just trying to find some common ground. I says, well, surely we can agree that we should have an evidence-based policy. And they said, yes, yes, I think, I think we can definitely agree that that's what we need. But we do first, and he said this with no irony, we do first have to decide what the evidence is. <laughs> no, no irony at all. And I think we had that during, during the uh, referendum, didn't we? There was the famous Gove. It, it was, yeah. we're, we're, we're fed experts, up with experts. Yeah. And Farage said it. Well, Farage actually went on record and said, why, you, why have you started smoking again? He said, because I don't think experts got it right on this one. And Susie Gage, who was on the first episode of this one that does Say Why to Drugs on the Distraction Pieces Network, 
she was she took to Twitter pretty much up in arms about that because that's yeah, just damaging messaging, and that's what we're trying to do get across with. Yeah, but, I mean, again, sorry, <laughs> you've got ninety nine percent of the world's scientists saying the way that we have industrialized the world is going to kill all of mankind, <laughs> and yet the fact that ninety nine percent of all of the scientists science. Scientists, I think, get like a weird reputation because things like you, you are told something is science. Like, oh, that medicine that made that kid's head grow out of his you know, shoulder. Oh, science. <laughs> science is a method. Science is just establish a methodology. Is this a thing? Let's find out. No, it turns out not a thing. Is this a thing? Well, it might be a thing. Well, maybe more testing is needed. Is this thing a thing? Yeah, we think it is a thing. All right, well, you guys go and do the same experiment and see if you get the same result. That is all science is. So if we can't, if we can't stem just pumping carbon dioxide and methane into the, envir- into the atmosphere in order to, I don't know, prevent the complete destruction of our species, then the idea that this kid with a spliff from a council estate isn't going to prison? Ah, what the fuck? I mean, it's, you know... What, what kind of entry level were you at on drug policy, JS, when you wrote Neil's book? Which, I don't think we've even said the title yet, have we? It's Good Cop, Bad War, by the way, because that's the first time we've actually mentioned the title. Plug the book. Yeah, plug the book. What, what, before you started writing it, what did you know about drug policy? Were you fairly involved, or was you a bit more hands-off? Um, I knew quite a bit about drugs. Um, what I knew about drug policy, like I said, starting off from a pretty just don't tell me what to do, and I, th- I think it's basically, yeah, a moral line of just don't tell other people what to do if they are not harming other people. Um, that, was, that was pretty much it, and otherwise, you know, avoid cops if you got drugs on you. That was what I knew. <laughs> um, so then you got in contact with the one of the biggest Yeah, but like cops. I said, that, that led to a lot more research. I think, I, I just, I think what you just said was really important, actually, um, and I'd like to go back to it. This because it's something uh, I really enjoy about this book and I'm really looking forward to it. I think there is, this, uh, there is a massive divide in how drug laws work for wealthy people and how they work for poor people. And I also think there's a divide in opinion which is, goes deeper than we think between London and Ocelot and you know, the rest of my douchebag metropolitan liberal elite friends. <laughs> Uh, and the rest of the country. And I think you know, what happened with this referendum just now has shown that this is pretty deep. And what I really like is, is that Neil's a cop. And when polit- politicians find it very easy to go, or you know, populist voices very easy to go to somebody, even like David Nutt, who's a very serious scientist. Oh, yeah, well, you're up in your ivory tower and you say we should legalize drugs. They can't fuck with him. They can't fuck with Neil because he's a cop. And they at least have to pretend to listen to what he says, because all the politicians oh, are boys in blue, da-da-da-da-da. And Neil's perspective is very unique um, of why, from real experience, this is just, it's unfixable with law enforcement. Law enforcement will only ever make it worse, and it's not about how. It's not about how drug laws are enforced. It's not about the method. It's written into the script. This cannot work. And um, it goes into much more detail, obviously, in the book. Buy a book. Um, but Good cop, th- bad ball. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I'm going to really enjoy watching a lot of these politicians squirm when this comes out because they can't walk away from it. 
because they have to pay lip service, at least to the police, even if they fuck the police in various ways, they have to pretend to listen. And I think it has the potential to like reach out across because Neil's not from London, he's from Derbyshire, he's a cop. You know, people may listen to him who won't listen to, you know, douchebag over here. So. No, that, that's right. And, and that's, um, I mean, that's why I joined LEAP, um, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, because it's spreading across the globe. It's now represented in 20 countries. And the advantage we have when we're speaking to politicians or members of the public is, is that people do listen because I'm not meant to be the person saying this. And I never tire of that double take in any audience or anyone I speak to. And they look at me and say, hang on, what? You're, you used to do what? And you're saying what? And, and I never get tired of that because it engages people. Um, and, and yeah, people should listen to us. I must admit, that's why I like working with Leap as well, because I'm not a cop. You know, I've never done anything like that. I'd, at the best, you'd say I was a marketeer. And... The reason I got behind Leap is because I knew that these voices are needed. You know, once you get an undercover cop, we've got chief constables, we've got... Who else have we got on the team? SAS, as you said. MI5. MI5. Barristers. How magistrates. You, and these people saying the war on drugs is lost. We need to do something about it. We need legal regulation. And, yet, and when we did our big parliamentary launch, the room was packed, wasn't it? And there, we had a lot of MPs there. Um, specifically, uh, up in Scotland, uh, the MP from Inverclyde. He really wants to work with us because... It was a, a dynamic that he had not had to the conversation before. So once you do get that, and, and it's the same in the medical field as well, you know, we've got the IDHDP that um, very much for harm reduction, which we completely advocate as well. But we're still ignoring these people. Why do we do that? Why do we still ignore the voices that have been there on the front lines, both on medical science and law enforcement, and yet we just go, no, nah, they don't count? Yeah, exactly. Um and, and hopefully, you know, as you say, we've got chief constables, we've got various voices, and people can tell different stories. But I do hope that um, when the book comes out, plug the book. Um, when when the book comes out, pe- people will be genuinely horrified by just just exactly, you know, what happens when you ask your police to police drugs, um, because there is, like JS said, there is an inevitability to it. There's an, an, an ever-escalating war. You can never, you can never de-escalate it. Um, and, I mean, f- I knew that the war on drugs was unwinnable and a ridiculous idea um, many, many years ago, and, but I still kept working. I still kept doing the working I was doing. Uh, and the reason for that, I gave up undercover work loads of times, but I got tempted back into it. And they say, Woodsy, we really need you to do this job because these gangsters are even nastier than the last ones. Uh, for one job in Northampton, for example, they said, look, Woodsy, these people are raping people for drug debts. That's, that's the fear that they're creating in their community. So you really need to catch these. You're the person that can do it. Come and do it. So I got tempted back into it. But eventually the penny dropped after many years. And I do hope that people read this book and consider this issue and the penny drops for them a lot quicker than it did for me. That actually the reason these gangsters were getting worse every year without fail was down to me. Well, not just me, but people like me. They were getting worse because of the police. Now, the kind of work that I I used to do is incredibly intrusive. Um, it's, It's like the nuclear nuclear version of, of policing really it's the most intrusive thing you can do in a community and in people's lives um, and, and in order to authorise undercover work you, 
you have to be able to show that all other policing methods have either been tried or failed or not possible. So it's literally policing of last resort. So the kind, of, the kind of gangsters I was going after, this is literally the only policing, the only kind of policing that would actually catch them. It's the only chance you've got of catching them. And so they want to defend against the tactic that I was sort of trying to develop and always trying to develop year after year. And there's always a pushback. And if people have ever have seen The Wire, uh, that's very accurate. There is always a sort of um, development of tactics to outdo the police. But the most important weapon gangsters have, the biggest weapon organised crime have, is fear. Because the best way of protecting themselves against police informants who will grasp them up, or intimidating communities so that it makes it difficult for undercover police to work, you use fear, so you intimidate an entire community. And that was literally a direct result of my work. That wouldn't have happened or developed without the policing of drugs. So... So, having come to that conclusion, that's literally what, what brought me to reform. So I do hope that people are sufficiently shocked by the reality of, of the book. And for me as well, this is where, again, release come in, is that the voice of the consumer of drugs and also the ones that are at the, the front line of war on drugs that are getting persecuted through the, from the policies that we're enforcing, again, you guys deal with that, don't you? So I'm going to come to you in a minute, if that's all right, to have a, have a quick word to see what again, how we can improve these and how we can have harm reduction on the policy itself. And I'm glad you mentioned The Wire because we've got a loose theme tonight about fiction. And, and again, if you're going to have questions as well about what your favourite films are, what your favourite books are, just to kind of trivialise it all a bit there. <laughs> we're going on about all these really hard-hitting things you've actually done, Neil, like a samurai sword to your throat and things like that. And then we're going to talk about, I don't know, Pineapple Express with Joe... No, not Joe Rogan, um, Seth Rogan, which a great film, by the way. But Great film. <clears throat> the thing is that people who want drugs kept illegal don't really argue with you because the, any time you get into that argument, you just go, look, here's all the evidence, and then they lose. That is true. That is one of the things we really struggle with, just getting an engagement. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. No, because they know that once, once you start that conversation, you've lost. The, the reason drugs... Well, the, no, hang on. It's not the reason drugs are illegal... It's the reason some things are classified as illegal drugs. That's the difference. And look, I think it says it in the culture high, and I'm sure everybody in this room already knows this and already agrees. But you'll say to people, well, why will you drink, but you wouldn't take MDMA? And they go, well, MDMA's a drug. <laughs> well, what's the difference between the two? Well, alcohol is alcohol, but MDMA is a drug. Yeah, but what makes that? Well, it's a try. No, all that's happened is, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You say something's an illegal drug, therefore it's illegal, therefore it's a drug. And I, and I actually think that arguably, maybe philosophically, it's a more, uh, a more widespread harm is done. Because once you say the things in this group are one thing and the things in that group are another thing, what you're saying to people is, don't worry, we'll do the thinking for you. And maybe a more helpful way is to say, no, all of these things... I mean, look, uh, the professor on, on, the, uh, on the film says about shopping and sex, but, you know, nicotine, caffeine, sugar, fat, the 50-50 mix of sugar and fat, which 
you know they're trying to like get the sugar tax in. Well, they've done experiments on rats and things. Sugar, you have your fill of sugar and you're full. You have your fill of fat and you're full. It's the 50-50 mix. That's the one. A Krispy Kreme donut, sugar on the outside, deep fried you know, flour on the inside. It's all about that 50-50 mix. Our brain processes the 50-50 mix of fat and sugar in the same way that our brain processes drugs. You are consuming happy chemicals or you're consuming the thing that generates the happy chemicals. So, you know, I, I, I suppose I cling to that Krispy Kreme thing just because I can go to a service station off the motorway. I walk past Ben's Cookies on Ben's the way cookies. here. Holy shit, Ben's. Do we all know about Ben's Cookies? Oh, I am such oh a fan. my days. If we can if get you, sponsorship. I'd oh, love if Ben's Cookies yeah. are watching this, please step up. Yeah. Please step up. A little plate of Ben's would have been quite something around about now. Um, but what, what you're doing is saying to people, you can have as much of this as you like, but none of this. And actually, if you eat Cocoa Pops, if you, if you ate a box of Cocoa Pops every day, I think, from what I understand at least about the science, and if the science says I'm wrong, then I will be wrong. I will eat shit and die about this. But... I think you are more likely to die if you eat a box of Cocoa Pops a day than if you smoke one joint a day. Because the amount of sugar and They kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The problem is you have that joint and yeah. a box of Cocoa Pops is a real fucking great idea. Uh, it makes the milk go chocolatey. Shut the fuck up, monkey. Busy. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah. we got an example of that, of how convoluted and stupid it's all got with the, with the psychoactive substance bill, haven't we? Uh, well, act this now. is why I brought up Theresa May, the author, you know, thousand years of British legal tradition has produced some pretty wacky laws, but like... That psychoactive substances bill, that's fucking out there, man. <laughs> that's, that's crazy to outlaw a blanket ban of everything that, cause, that causes a change in consciousness. I kind of had this daydream fantasy of um, the day that law got introduced of calling the police, going to the National Gallery and calling the police and say, this art has altered my consciousness. <laughs> Throw everyone in jail, every artist, every poet, every musician, Chuck him in prison because they've altered my... Like, what the fuck? Like, no, how, do you alter, how do you ban that? They're busting into Buddhist centres. Yeah, Get on the floor! Exactly. Oh, you're already on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the state we're in. Where they did ban everything until it was, it was guilty and proven. The, the brilliant thing is, right, I, I really cling to this idea that there are just some human things that we understand and once you have to define them they lose the thing that we actually understand them to be so I've got quite a lot of sympathy with something like the psychoactive substances bill because it was created by people who are trying to get to you know what we mean yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah. you know what we mean yeah. But the problem is they can't define you know what we mean. It's not so very, it just not very good this, like, yeah. fucking nonsense of uh, all psychoactive substances. But you know what we mean. You know what we mean. Common sense. Common sense. It's really just the way of squishing any thought that challenge, challenges the established norm. And, and it's not good enough. It's... We have to have evidence-based policy now because we are no longer in the dark ages. And frankly, the moment you get into any kind of argument about evidence-based policy, drug policy reform is just like... It's, is, is, it's, like, it's like the punchline yeah. in a really sick joke. You know, the, the problem we have, there's, there's many of us in drug law reform, and the thing that we struggle 
to do is to reach new audiences. And, and for a long time, I mean, we have wonderful people working in drug policy reform. Uh, I'm looking at some of them in the audience there. And, uh, and we have transformed drug, drug policy. Um, there's various people, but we do struggle to break outside our own circle. And we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time preaching to the converted. Because the people who are most likely to want to come to an event are those that are already convinced. But, so this is why we do the podcast, because the podcast will reach new ears. Because the podcast is, is a varied audience. So, Joe, yes, you wrote for Vice, didn't you? Which I do, I do quite a bit for them, yeah. So, which we associate with drug culture and things like that. So, is that why you, you had an interest in why you spotted Neil's book and how it kind? Of, is it is there any kind of dovetailing within that, or is it very much a separate? Well, um, only to the extent that I come, I come from. I used to play in bands, you know. I've been around drugs a lot. I grew up in North London. I don't sound like it. I grew up in Kentish Town, like. You name a drug, aside from his fermented uh, reindeer urine, you name a drug, I've probably tried it. Like, I've been around this stuff a lot. And is it, I is guess it, a lot of people who work for Vice could say the same thing. So is, so. It, it kind of goes about saying that the, that the entertainment industry has got drugs associated. But yeah. Would you say that it's as much as people think, or less, or more, even? It's pretty ubiquitous. But I think it's pretty ubiquitous throughout society, to be honest. I think a lot of people do a lot of drugs. I mean, cannabis, weed, who, who doesn't? I mean, who, or let, let me put it, who hasn't? There's a better way to put it. Coke, it's everywhere. And yeah, the, the media guys, yeah, it's just true. It is. It is everywhere. So why can't we have that rational conversation? Why are we still in that position of just brushing it under the carpet? Actually... I had, I had a thought while you guys were talking about why this is. And about, because you were meant to be talking about drugs and entertainment, right? Well, it's kind of loose. I just, yeah. just needed something for the Eventbrite link, so go for it. But I actually, th- I actually think, I, just while you guys were talking, I kind of like a little light bulb went off. And I, I, like as a thought experiment, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I think drugs are actually fetish objects. I think it's actually fetishized in our culture, right? So some people, there's this like, simultaneous real attraction to it and glamorization. And then you get films like Train Spotting or, you know, the way people talk about dance music and it's like meant to be like the greatest thing on earth. And I mean you get cannabis guys going and they're like, oh my God, cannabis will solve all your problems or you take acid and you can attain con- higher levels of consciousness. And then simultaneously you get people going anyone who does drugs is evil and you get the Miami Vice kind of version of like the guy with fingerless gloves going like Hey kid, you want drugs? Like next to the playground. And actually, drugs are neither of these things. Like, they're not um, that. I mean, they're pretty cool. They're fun and people like them. But they're not the best thing in the world ever. And they're not the most evil thing in the world ever. But they've become. So there's a fetish reaction. So when people uh, in whatever, Middle England or Parliament or wherever it is, have this like reaction to it, it's actually a Freudian repression <laughs> of their own erotic desire for it. <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> the fuck happened while I was away? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all gone sexy. <laughs> like, yeah, but I think it is, you can see where I'm going. And like in popular culture, you have all these songs about drugs. I mean, how many fucking songs can you write about smoking dope? I mean, reggae is great. I love it. But like, it, ultimately you need something more. And I guess when we talk about The Wire, 
I I really liked the wire because it was the only one which actually was like, no, this is. I don't know where it occupies really because it's not. It's it, not really a documentary. I've I've met some of the um, I've met someone who used to work in the murder, de- murder department in um, in Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Well, um, our um, our uh, chief our, exec. our chief executive, the head the head of Leap right. International. Um, he he's he was he, in this room actually. He said yeah because he, he came he was here for the for the launch, um, and he said it's, it's that's not. That's not fiction. That's that's like a documentary because he knows all of the people involved. They are all real characters. All of yeah. those are real stories. That they're, they're not exaggerated at and all. And that that didn't treat drugs as a fetish object with like inherent evil or inherent glamour. It was just like no, this it's somewhere between a commodity and a luxury good, and it has a market effect in that way. And that's the only rational way to. It's a product. People buy it. People sell it. And if you illegalize it. The price goes up, and people sell more of it. Yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. But, but you know that the point about you, you say fetishizing it. So you get the extreme ends of the spectrum. You get people, you get a sort of um, different drug cultures where people, you know, people get really into the substance that they choose choose to do, and it it becomes a culture thing. And you get the flip side of the coin where people hate them. But the, the reason for that is that there's a dividing line. The law has separated, has put a big split down the middle of communities. It's separated people. It's made, it's made a whole group of people, the other, the other person, the other group of people that we look down on. And the only defence for that, really, is to celebrate your own culture and your own lifestyle and, and stand up for yourself. And that's, that, that's why you get that ever-increasing dividing line be- between those that look down on and those that, those that stick the finger but, back over. But as with all fetishes, it's because they really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't forget as well that if you want to get a drink in at this point with some legal drugs, bars open. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a half time in this, so make sure you keep yourself topped up. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, just to hit on that point, though, in terms of uh, uh, entertainment, actually... You can go, uh, I'm sh- we may even be in the section, maybe we're not, I don't know. It's probably around the corner looking at what else is on here. But true crime, 
I mean, that's the thing is, the stuff is made illegal. Guns and drugs are illegal to sell. So what happens? Where do gangsters get their money? Well, they, you know, supply and demand. Very basic economics. Yeah. I should point out, I was terrible. I did economics GCC. I got a D. But the thing that I understand are the basics of supply and demand. If there's demand and uh, no legal supply, that doesn't mean supply disappears. It just means the supply moves somewhere else. And we know that. But, but in terms of the wire, why do people like the wire or uh, narcos? I think is one that's on now, or was it the... Breaking Bad. Or Breaking yeah. Bad. Well, there was a, another one. Maybe people in this room know it. The Collateral or something? The new one? What, sorry? Shield. The Shield, yeah. Uh, but uh, There's another one on one it's of the cart- streaming, so the Cartel. Cartel, yeah. Sorry. You know, people, people just like those anti-hero characters and true crime and you know they like the idea of flipping it on their head I have to say I find it rather distasteful that whole um, let me introduce you to my little friend Uh, uh, what's the name of that movie? Scarface Scarface like I grew up in the uh, my teenage years were throughout the 90s and the number of posters there were of that guy you know, and, and what's it seen as? It's seen as a story of a kid who came from nothing who was willing to climb his way to the top. So actually, so much of that, like, gangster rap, yeah, 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 you know, I'm selling bitches on the corner and I'm selling drugs, right? you know. It's like, it's, it's glamorising a crime culture from an underclass that saw crime as its way out of being shit on. And then... Basically, once you have working-class people bought into the idea that something is cool, middle-class people desperately want to attach themselves to it also being cool because the worst thing in the world is being seen as being middle-class. And we also have ones as well, like, um, what was it? Is it Saving Grace, the the one that's about the cannabis, the grain yeah. that's growing cannabis? Yeah, and we, there was we, a, a uh, an HBO series that was basically the same idea. Oh, weeds. Weeds, yeah. yeah. that was it. We are. We, we, I think what you said, J.S., is right. I think we fetishise. I think... That, this is inherently within culture. Yeah, but all I'm, I suppose what I'm getting at is that the, the thing that draws us to that story, I don't think is necessarily the fetishization of the substance itself, more that those substances are the conduit for a journey from I've been shit on to now I'm going to become the king. And that's Breaking Bad, that's Weeds, that's uh, The Wire, that's all of that. It's, if, you, if, 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 if the world is just pooping on you from a great height, that's the uh, the outlaw story, the out, like the outlaw kind of character. Like, yeah, but why should guy who's essentially f- selling a pharmaceutical product be an outlaw? Yeah, no, like, it's a bit silly. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Why should they? Like, and yet we have yeah. created an entire world. <laughs> exactly. Where yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah, quite. Quite. Would you say that mimics life? That if you do have that that counterculture that goes with drugs, it's their way out to be the king and the hero. Is that pretty much how it works in reality? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the structure... Say, if you, if you look at the organised crime structure, the way it works, um, there, it's obviously hierarchical, and, and pe- people do aspire to climbing the ladder. But it's interesting the way that starts. Um, and this sort of taps into the, the, the most regular argument I used to have with cops before I, before I left the job, and I was trying to convince them all of the ways of uh, regulating drugs. Most of them would say, but the gangsters are not not going to stop. The gangsters are, are still going to be there. They're not going to go away just because you've taken drugs away from them to, to sell drugs. 
Well, that's, that's a fascinating um, idea, and it's a terrible idea, because um, that's, it's dangerous to think, because that's saying that those people are, all, are just inherently bad, and they're always going to be bad. That's like saying they were born bad. So it's actually the business that creates, creates the empire. And, and the way that organised crime groups recruit in, in uh, inner cities is the young teenagers get enough cannabis for their mates, so they get it laid on, they pay, they pay the amount back when they've, when they've sold it on. Um, they get street cred for getting the best quality guns, getting the best connections. And then in no time at all, they're increasing their amounts and then they're part of the team. A couple of years later, then they're tempted into the enormous amount of money that selling heroin and crack will bring. And that's where gangsters come from. That, that is where they come from. I have seen cheeky 17-year-olds turn into absolutely terrifying 18-year-olds over the space of a six-month job in a, in, a, in, a, in a city. And, and this, is, this is the reality. This is the, the war on drugs is creating this ever-expanding world of organised crime. And because it is shaping the, the personalities of our young men, you know, making these people become terrifying, that's also shaping how communities are. So does that answer the, does that answer the Absolutely. point? Absolutely. Although I think, arguably, that's the symptom of a wider malaise which is that we are creating a psychopathic society. Now, um, I use psychopathic uh, in the quasi-scientific, uh, you know, uh, psychological term, not psychopathic as in, therefore, you're a mass murderer, but that uh, way that psychotherapists and psychologists define psychopathy, which is, I see myself as the most important thing, to hell with everyone else, sharpest elbows wins. I know lots of people in good corporate jobs... Good, fine people live for the weekend, love their families. Talk to them about what they do Monday to Friday and they'll tell you they hate it. They hate it, they hate themselves, they hate what the job requires of them to do. Which is, screw you guys, I'm getting there. Because if I don't have the desire to climb up the top of that ladder, I will just be a rung for somebody else. I'll be trodden on the way down. And people that I love, that I know are brilliant people in their hearts... Monday to Friday, I have to walk into a room, look at somebody with 30 years working for the company under their belt and go, in an hour from now, you're going to hand me your letter of resignation or I will make your life a living hell. So, to me, it feels like we have lost so much sight of like basic common decency, basic humanity. Everything is done in service to money. Uh, you know, we're not... When people talk about paying taxes, it's about this thing, this awful thing that's inflicted on me rather than, hey, I sent a kid to university. You know, oh, I, 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 I opened another hospital. I, you know, I, 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 this society serves me well, and I serve it because I am part of the gang that is making this, this stretch of land that I live on as good as it can possibly be. It feels to me that Thatcherite ideal of greed is good is unsurprising to me, uh, microcosmically reflected in the drug trade, because it is... Whatever you have to do, do it. But I, I think that, that that reflects all the way up to boardrooms and people in suits. It's, it's, uh, it's a model. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can see that completely. But I do wonder, and I have spent some time thinking about this, because I've seen just the sheer extent of the impact that these people and the organised crime groups have on communities. And that spreads through communities and through a whole society. So I do wonder that if we... If when it does happen and we end this war on drugs and we regulate drugs and we stop judging people and we stop the stigma and we reduce the crime 
So people aren't in fear of crime to the same extent. Their houses are getting burgled less. People who have addictions, we decide to care for them rather than lock them up and persecute them or look down on them. When those, then those changes happen, I wonder if that will be one of the first chinks that reduces that long-term psychopathic element in society. Wouldn't that be lovely? It, I think so. It's, fu it's funny doing the... Because I have a more optimistic take on contemporary society, maybe. But one of the things I, that... It would be hard <laughs> for you to have a more pessimistic take, yeah. put it that way. <laughs> um, one of the main things when I was doing the book with Neil and researching it, is you just start thinking, fuck, there's, there's a lot of real serious problems out there, like big macro problems, like the restructuring of China's economy. This is a big deal, right? Globalization of labor and digitization and like capitalism is at a very transformative phase right now with technology. And you think, and we're wasting our time with this? <laughs> we're spending seven billion pounds a year just in this country chasing crack addicts who could be helped in other ways. Like, and it has such a ripple effect. If you, you think of the drug war as a stone dropped in a pond and the ripples that come out from that stone are, I mean, it reaches way deeper than you think. Uh, was it the statistic over 50% of the people in British prisons are there in some way related to drugs? So yeah. scratch the surface of a murder, you'll find a drug war. Scratch the surface of a burglary, you'll find uh, somebody robbing to pay for dope, right? It's such an easy thing to fix, and it takes up a lot of our time, and it's, it really fucks up policing as well. It's really bad for police to have to devote their energy and time for this. Police forget how to do police work. The statistic Neil gives is in the late 60s, the murder clearance rate for police in the United States was about 90%. About 90% of murders got solved. Drug war came in about 1971, by 1974, it dropped to 64%. Um, and is about, basically flatlined at about 60 ever since, right? So police aren't solving murders because it's way easier, this is dealt with in the wire, it's way easier to do rip and run, uh, you know, drug raids. And you chase drugs, you don't do solve real crime. So this, the drug war has a real, it is an expansive effect on society and it would be quite easy to fix and devote those resources to this really deep, serious shit that we've got to deal with. So but isn't this the, this is the Portugal argument, right? Yeah, quite, quite, So, exactly. I mean, like, yeah. again, you talk about evidence-based policy. Look what happened in Portugal. They took the money that they were spending fighting the war on drugs. They now spend a fraction of that money treating all of their drug addicts. And the number of people who identify or, or can be identified as drug addicts has gone down. Yeah. Like... It's been tried. It's been done by a nation state, by a European, westernised, you know, nation state. And it works. And it also impacts acquisitive crime as well. There's a slight decrease in Portugal. But if you look at Swiss, uh, Switzerland, that have got heroin maintenance, it's even further down because people don't have to rob to get the conditions they need to fulfil their chemical hook. Like, it's sad. And maybe that's the thing that we don't say that people who disagree with us, need to hear us say. It's really sad, that. What a terrible way you must be in. What an what awful point your life has got to if that's what you've been reduced to. No one is saying, hey, let's have drugs because drugs are fun and drugs are fine and here's all the evidence that drugs are fine. There are innumerable ways in which people ingest and inject 
and you know inhale and it's awful so much of that is being done for reasons that are really born out of the worst part of human sadness imaginable it's not actually about taking a you know a moral standpoint on drugs are dot 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 insert superlative here it's about saying that you're never going to get to a society where people aren't interested in taking drugs. So you can either force those people into a prison or force those people to get help, recover, and hopefully become productive members of society. But we are only playing the hand that we're dealt. This isn't some cloud cuckoo thing. People are going to take drugs. What do you want to do? That's the question. It's not how do you stop people taking drugs. People are going to take drugs. Now what? And kind of goes back to what you're saying as well about functional addicts, but also about people that aren't actually addicted. Are we able to have that conversation yet? Can we have this conversation of, look, you don't always get addicted to drugs. You can take them. <laughs> well, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 90% of people who take drugs don't have a problem with with them at all. And that's UN recognised. Yeah, UN, UN statistics. It's, 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 it breaks down what, 68 percent of people with cannabis it's, it's actually, you know it's actually, these statistics yeah, it's, right it's, it's, actually, it's, it's around the 10 percent mark for around al- yeah for all for all drugs collectively so alcohol it's 10 percent um cannabis 6.8 percent so it's less addictive than than uh, alcohol cocaine between 10 and 15 percent uh supposedly crystal meth 15 percent there's some different figures there but yeah it's, it's it all with averages her- heroin's an outlier heroin heroin's the like. heroin's the, yeah. the unusual one where around 25 percent <laughs> 25% of people who use heroin have a problematic relationship with it. But you have to look at what that drug actually does for people because the majority of people, problematic users of that, that I've met um, that use heroin are actually doing so because they receive some kind of abuse as a child, either physical or sexual abuse. I've met, I got into a lot of conversations with a lot of heroin addicts over the years and um, they trusted me. They were foolish to do so, but they trusted me and shared their stories with me. And Literally, the majority of them are self-medicating for some serious, serious abuse in their life. So it's quite understandable that that percentage of people who have a problem with a drug is a lot higher. But can I just pick up on something you mentioned about Switzerland and something you just mentioned as well, Rufus, that you said there's an option either locking people up or forcing people to get get some help. Well, in Switzerland, their heroin-assisted therapy, they don't force them. If someone actually does get onto heroin-assisted therapy... um, and this is a, critici- a criticism of prescribing heroin. People will say, you can't prescribe heroin because they'll just take as much as they want and take loads. Well, they let them in Switzerland. If they want to do, keep increasing their dose every day, they let them increase their dose. They're in charge of it. And in almost every case, it's between six and eight weeks of not having to go thieving or prostituting for that drug that they realise that, oh, actually, I don't want to keep increasing my dose. I'm going to bring my dose down because they're in control of it. Wow. And we, they, they're trusted to be in control of the dosages that they have. And that says a great deal about rescuing people from the street. And, and just quickly, referring to the story I said rather clumsily at the start of the evening about the, the uh, young lady in Nottingham who was um, a prostitute on the streets there. In Switzerland, because of heroin-assisted therapy, they have virtually eliminated street prostitution. So... For me, that is a reason in itself to uh, to bring in hats in this country. Although, as the home of um, international banking, my guess would be they haven't eliminated prostitution. 
Wait, UN's there too, mate. <laughs> yeah. And FIFA. Yeah. <laughs> we just opened a can of worms now. Yeah. This is like a plunk. Like you said, you drop a stone in and all of a sudden yeah. it ripples out. The thing I fundamentally believe is that all true change is generational. So the reason that we... I mean, uh, admittedly, the last three weeks haven't been a shining example, but the reason that we are a less racist society than we were in the 1970s is because kids who have grown up now have kids of their own and each chip away at the lessons learned, the, the, the environment in which you grow up, the prevailing um, ethos of the society, you know, it is imbued generation on generation. So that's the first thing, is that all true change is generational. So we can, we can see it as we can demand something now and we can have all the facts now, but realistically start making noise about the change you want and I think it probably takes about 30 years to really bring that about. Would that it weren't the case, but I think it kind of is. So then now seems like a much darker time and our only chance as progressives of every stripe but certainly in terms of progressive drug policy, is we, sometimes you've just got to be the light in the darkness. Sometimes you've just got to be the candle in the night. It's not that come to us and we'll make everything better. It's just like, this is the direction we need to go in. And so I think expecting a kind of top-down change rarely happens. It's bottom-up. That's the only way that anything has ever changed. So, you know, find someone you love, someone that you think you can talk to who currently doesn't agree with you, and just find one person and talk to them and try and find opportunities to change their mind. And when you've changed their mind, ask them to find one person. Because if everyone just found one person, we get that message out. But if everyone found two people, within 30 years, the argument's won. But it, it's got to be you find a friend. Because evidently, when people in pulpits, when people in parliament talk, down to the populace and say this is what is it just doesn't work it, it's got to be us and so podcasts great i wonder genuinely and this is really no criticism because hopefully there will be people who see this who didn't agree and maybe are a bit more won over by the end who knows or at least interested enough to want to find out more which would be the ideal but it's just information it's evangelizing it's having the facts available to people Facts don't change people's minds. What change people's minds are hugs and smiles and kindness and uh, stories. And if you've got those things and, and you can share those with people, then you are an active force for change. This is why we've got really enthusiastic about the podcast, because since we did with Scroobius Pip, the, the special, and I did an episode myself as well, and hence why Scroobius has really kindly subscribed us to the network, it's worked. It's really done a lot to get a new spread, especially on social media. You know, the, the celebrity punch that we use, you know, we, we unapologetically pair ourselves with public figures like yourselves because you carry so much power, you guys. You, you, know, you honestly do. You can carry that message across. It would be, to listen, we it would be lovely to think that were true. But, um, you know, Eddie Izzard goes out there, who is beloved. You know, Eddie Izzard, people love Eddie Izzard. He goes out there and says, vote Labour. <laughs> We've still got a Conservative government. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which if you have an audience, you can make some noise and that more people will hear that noise. But it just doesn't come from screens and pulpits and stages and people with microphones. The irony being, of course, I say this whilst holding a microphone. But 
it, it, that's, you know, if it worked that way, the world would be a different place. It, it evidently does not work that way. It's about finding people you know, you like, that trust you, that love you, and slowly, you know, there are ways of doing it, and it's a skill, undoubtedly, but just have the conversation and, and be, be tooled up. You know, the information's out there. We live in the information age. Offer it to people and, and, and spend a bit of time trying to convince them. It's, it's the best thing you can possibly do, and it doesn't mean you need to organise a rally of tens of thousands of people. I've been at those rallies. I've spoken at those rallies. I'm about to go to one now and do exactly that. But I will be talking to a room full of people who already agree with me. Easiest gang in the world. Serialising the Daily Mail. You know, that's the thing. I tried that, though. I tried, you know, being a bit more of a mainstream face. And you think, great, now that I've got them, I can actually say some of this stuff to people who didn't naturally already agree with me. It's amazing how quickly those shutters come down, man. What would you say, Jess? Because I've personally got a lot of faith in the book. Again, I think it's the stories, the way you're doing it. I think there's a lot of power in that. Do you think that we could get some... I don't want to piggyback on it, to, you know, because at the end of the day... Piggyback away, it? man. <laughs> Do it. So would you, would, uh, would you say that you're, you've got faith in the book that it can create those conversations? I have hope and faith. Yeah, I hope that, I hope that it does. Um, I think it has the potential to. Uh, Neil, I'm going to talk about you in the third person a bit. But yeah, like I said before, Neil's a cop. He's from the North. He's not a journalist from London. I mean, and respect to David, not as a scientist, respect to Johan Ari as a journalist. But so if you want to convince somebody to, uh, that we should legalize drugs, just stay very specific on drugs. If you start going, so, and the whole way you live is wrong, and you read the wrong newspapers, and you do that, it's like they're just going to shut down. Just stay very specific. Like, we need to do this thing, and it can help in these ways. And, that, and little by little, society will change and all the rest of it. So I think, yeah, just be straight with people, take other people's opinions on board. And I think Neil's very good at this. He's a very empathetic guy, and he's very good at, like, taking on the other. I, it's, I really admire it about him. And, uh, and buy our book. <laughs> so if someone's got a concern, it's a legitimate concern, and you should address quite, that. Quite, and so, so yeah, I'm going to go on about this a bit more. There are swathes of this country uh, that have been decimated by drugs, and I can see why people who live in old coal towns would be really fucking sceptical about the ideas, because they've seen their... You know, the 80s came, the coal mining went, industry went, and it left a vacuum, and what filled that vacuum was booze and smack. Right? And it destroyed communities and it's done horrible things. And drugs can do horrible things to people and to communities. Uh, those are the people you need to convince. And they take some convincing and they take some convincing for good reasons. You have to be very careful to say, no, look, we get drugs are a major problem. They are a problem. And law enforcement is just simply the wrong tool to fix them. Healthcare is a better tool. That's all. How do you say, Neil? Well, yeah, I mean, but I, I would argue that drugs are a problem because they are illegal. Yeah, quite. quite it, yeah. It, 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 is, it is literally that which creates the problem. It's, it's, the, it's the illegality which actually, yeah. which actually damages the communities rather than drugs themselves. Yeah, that's because, a good point, that's a good point. Um, so, um, but that's the, that's the safety, that's harm reduction, that's getting rid of organised crime. But, I mean, what I, what I would say is that 
we do have a good chance if, if we expand as an organization we have a really good chance like we have across the world we do we're successful in the united states if, if people listening to this want to do something they can organize a speaking event they can invite us they can get a get a, an audience um then, then please, you know, we do speaking events, we do them at universities, we will travel, we do Skeptics in the Pub. We, we, have, we do all sorts of events, and that's how we reach ever bigger, bigger audiences. So and, and please, anyone listening to this, if you're thinking, well, what can I do? Then, then so please support Leap UK. And would, would that, sorry to uh, piggyback on the thing you're saying, but like, organise that, then find someone that you can talk to <laughs> that doesn't already agree with you, and then bring them to the speaking event. Like, that, that's, I suppose, what I, and again, when I say it doesn't come from people on stages, it doesn't come from people grandstanding, you know, I would absolutely classify your book as that is part of a testimonial of real-life experience that is part of that argument. That you could say to somebody, look, please read this. Hey, you know we were having that conversation. Please read this. This isn't, you know, the... the this guy, that guy, this organisation, that organisation. This was somebody on the front line, and what he found was broken people. And, you know, that, that it's part of that narrative. It's, it's genuinely what I mean when I say it's stories that change people's lives. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, yeah, please do persuade people to read the book. And also, I'd, I'd actually say, read Johan Hari's Chasing the Screen before my book, to be honest, because that, that's the most important piece of uh, writing on this topic but yes please please buy the book but um but but when you but there's, there's many things many things in the book that's not actually been touched on tonight and i think the one thing one conversation that i'm really looking forward to getting out there and i do hope it causes some serious controversy is the sheer scale of corruption that the war on drugs causes it eats away at our institutions it eats away at our law enforcement and um, I suppose that there isn't really time to go into great details, but I suppose you will have to buy the book for that. But there, we, I, I come across, I, I, came, I came across um, genuinely shocking corruption in, in the, um, during my time. Um, and this is what we need to get politicians talking about because people are not facing up to this fact. This, and, and in fact... The attitude that I got from senior covert police in this country was, well, I don't know why you're shocked, because with this much money involved, how can it not cause corruption? And that is the simple thing, that we are accepting the corruption rather than talking about it honestly and dealing with it. We've had loads of discussions, haven't we, about going back to what I said about using the celebrity punch to dovetail on to get our message across. Would you say that there's merit to that. Do you reckon we are getting somewhere by by using the celebrity figures like Rufus to go, look, 1.2 million Twitter followers, look what I've just done? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I take the point that Rufus said that just because you have a high profile doesn't mean you can influence uh, politics. And, and you, men you, you mentioned it, um, going mainstream and thinking that you could influence people or, or that you know Labour didn't get voted in and that's evidence that there's a lack of influence. But ours is a single issue. We're, we're not trying to persuade people to change their voting habits of a lifetime. We're not trying to persuade people to go against their upbringing and change what they do. Ours is a, a genuinely cross-party issue that can apply. We, we, speak, we spend as much time 
uh, speaking to the special advisors of conservative politicians as we do Labour politicians. This is this you is cross party. You could argue that there's actually more support in the Conservatives. Like when at, we've at, had the moment, we, at the moment, we have found much more useful support from the Conservatives than we have than we have Labour. So, because we are a single issue, and because we have that evidence, and because we can we can very succinctly and clearly show how we can improve things with this single change that support such as yourself gives us enormous power because people don't have to spend very much time thinking about what we're saying. It's a simple message. Yeah. No, that's because you're right. <laughs> we don't have to spend very long thinking about what you're saying because I go, oh. It's brick by brick, man. It's brick by brick. Every little helps. It's not one thing. We had we're all just shipping away, Tosh, right? Pete Tosh released Legalize It in 1977, it's still illegal. But, but, if you told me five years ago that in four or five states in the United States, marijuana would be legal, well, you're fucking stoned. Yeah, but <laughs> Colorado, but I mean... It's done, it's done. The tide is turning. Like, it is, I'm very optimistic about this. I think it is. And one of the beautiful things, a few words in defense of my country-ish, um, America can change fast. We do. We change fast there, like with civil rights, etc. There's a long way to go, and may it speed up, you know. But it can go fast. California. If California legalizes weed, that's a state with an economy larger than Italy's, <laughs> with legal marijuana. Like it's done. It's that's, done. It will. It will go everywhere. Like, that's my only hope yeah. for uh, at yeah. least marijuana legislation in this country. Yeah. It's one because basically we are just sucking on America's teat as a nation, especially now we're no longer in the EU. So if that thing... Because the problem that America faces is that the federal law remains that marijuana is illegal and then state legislature can make laws that say, no, we're not bothered about it. Once that becomes federal law, because Colorado is essentially an example where they legalised it and then crime went down and tax revenue went up. Well... Find me a thinking human being involved in politics that doesn't want to offer that to the electorate. So I, my only hope in this country, at least in terms of marijuana, is uh, that if America does it, the likelihood of us following suit is infinitely higher. Yeah, and I think it will. But Rufus, you're going to have to go. So one wrap-up soliloquy from you. <laughs> soliloquy. God bless you. I realise when I start talking, that's largely how it feels. <laughs> Everyone's just like, not to be... Not to be. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, uh, Springer's final thought. The reason that I like law enforcement uh, against prohibition is that it legitimises a whole set of facts and feelings, you know, that I have about how drug policy is enforced. And actually, not enforced, but inflicted. You know, it, the... The reason that I was so keen to talk to you was actually seeing, um, uh, you'll probably know who it was, but it was, I think, the founder of uh, Leap in, in the USA. Is it Neil Franklin? Big or... guy, beard. Big guy, beard. Yeah, we'll get to him. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, he, he said he was on a, he was a drug cop and he'd been doing really well. He got promoted like every other year. He was now really senior and to show comradeship with his team he would occasionally go on the odd bust like remind the little guys that the big man still cares and so they literally kick the door of this house open and they run in four of them and they've got people pinned to the ground and they run in where they've heard the drugs are stored which is in this girl's like pant drawer 
and he ran into this bedroom and he looked and it was exactly like his daughter's bedroom. Same posters, same album, same... And in that one moment, he just went, what are we doing? This isn't a criminal, this is a kid who is trying to fit in and is worried about not being cool enough. And all of the things I know are true about my daughter is just this girl dealing with it in a slightly different way. This isn't right. We're making criminals out of people who are searching or a bit lost or a bit broken or coping or self-medicating or you know whatever the terminology you want to use is. And that was what turned, turned him from being like, yeah, bust up drugs to, oh no, we're doing this all wrong. Then you read into it and then it all becomes sort of pretty apparent what it's really about. In America, you know, America is a country with a very different um, socio-political landscape in many ways than ours. But the the machinery of the war on drugs operates there as it operates here. In America, it's much more about ghettoized, largely black uh, uh, or South American, um, you know, kind of ghettoized communities and being able to just stamp up and down on them as and when you need to. In this country, we do it slightly differently, but it's all in the quest of who's to blame, look down. Don't look up. And um, I agree, you know, LEAP is a, is a single issue um, organisation and we can be very specific and clear in the things that we're saying and, and, the, and the changes we would like to see made. But it seems to me that no, no rational human being looks at the arguments for criminalising drugs and thinks, yes, this is a policy that is working and needs to be continued. What they look at it and see is, oh, what this allows us to do are these other hundred things, and we want those other hundred things because it helps us kind of maintain our draconian system, and therefore <coughs> we need to preserve it. So I, I agree that LEAP can maybe achieve change as a single issue, but the reason that we need that change is a societal issue, and that's the thing, that if we change that, then we're, you know, we're golden. It was uh, Ed Burns, who's another Baltimore cop and co-creator of The Wire. He signed off the culture high by saying that once it's your family member, your child, you get it. You understand it. Yeah, which is why I say evangelise. Find someone you love who loves you, who you can have that conversation with. My mum is a lifelong Tory, you know, and hates me for all sorts of reasons <laughs> and if she watches this which she almost certainly will because she's a dedicated fan uh, she'll hate me for saying that but there are all sorts of things I come out with that she would obviously dismiss in a heartbeat and yet in the last five years she's like why are they doing this to the NHS why is this happening and it feels to me like there's someone who loved me enough just to listen to what I was saying not to buy into you're saying it therefore you must be right but just loved me enough to hear my argument and then to go away and think about it. And because she's a very smart woman, she kind of came around to another way of seeing things. I really think that's as much as we can do. This idea that you've got to be a leader and, you know, the voice of your generation and change it is, an, you know, and, and look, I get it, man. I show off my whole life, my whole job, my whole setup, my id is showing off. But take it from someone who has done that for their whole lives. The license that gives you to change hearts and minds is nearly zero. I promise you. If you want to change people, the only way you'll do it, 
find someone you love and talk to them with kindness and acceptance. It's, it's seriously the only force of social change. That's perfect. And we're going to have Rufus's mum on the podcast. <laughs> but thank you. Give a round of applause to Rufus House so we can shoot off. Thank you so, so much. So is Sorry, it... just before I go, I can't remember the name of that book. Good Cop, Bad War. Good Cop, Bad War. And where, when's that available? 18th of August. Okay, great. Thanks available for pre-order now. Available for pre-order, you say? Pre-order is quite good because good then cop, it all adds up on the listings on the first week of sale. It's very good for us for pre-orders. Okay. Thank you very much. Rufus Hound, everyone. Let's have a quick wrap-up then, because I think it's now time. So, Good Cop, Bad Cop is out in Good August. Good Cop, Bad War. Oh, sorry. Good. <laughs> See, it's tiring now. Um, that's out August 18th, is it? 18th, yeah. Um, and it, anybody can buy it anywhere, can't they? It's on Amazon. It'll probably be in most bookstores. If, if they don't have it, they're not worth going into. How would you sell it? How would be your, your one paragraph of, you've got to buy this book? To put you on the spot there. Yeah, no, I th- this that's fine. Um, I know exactly why because it'll give you an angle which I can guarantee you have not heard before. It'll give you the law enforcement angle why drugs should be legalized because we know the science angle, we know the kind of humanitarian angle. At least I did, and through doing this book, I learned it. It, it would take quite a lot to explain the ins and the outs of it, but it gives you in a very clear way. Why this is un- why law enforcement is the wrong tool for this job, and why, if you've done DIY, you know if you try and use the wrong tool to do the job, you can damage the tool itself. It's bad for enforcement, it's bad for drug policy, and it's bad for the police generally. It's bad for all levels of society. And this, the book at least gave me a a very unique angle which you don't get from anywhere else. That's why. Brilliant and Neil. How would you both, in late good cop, bad war, just do a summary? Well, I think I'm hoping that the book will actually shock people. Um, and it will, that, uh, as JS said, um, it, it will make people re- realise what's going on that, that, that's not been in any other kind of medium at all. So, so in that, it's new. Um, and, uh, well... F- I don't think I can anything add much really to to what to what JS said, but um, I did some really dreadful things. I really did do some dreadful things in the name of as a representative of the state. And at the time, I believe what I was doing was was right, and that it was justified. The ends were justified. But when you realise what is actually going on as a result of the war on drugs, you'll see that the end the ends are never justified. Um, so uh, I hope that people will come on that on that journey with me, really, and and also, please support support Leap UK um, wherever you can, because Leap UK is far far more about um, us that's just sat here. We have some wonderful colleagues with some incredible stories to tell, which you can see on the back of these little flyers that are around. Um, and and from my side, this podcast is working well for us. So please download it, share it, put it to people that you think that should hear it. Um, suggest guests to us as well. You can find us, all our information is on these things. So tweet us with people that are interested in drug consumers, people, policy experts. Um, JS is going to be on again uh, on the podcast because JS has, hasn't even scratched the surface of his interest in 
um, persona within this discussion. So thank you so much for coming tonight. Come along to another one that we're going to do. And um, yeah, this is Stop and Search. Thank you very much, everybody. Don't forget, if you want to have a look at any links, there's going to be a few on the ACAST site, which will be acast.com slash stop and search. Uh, please do find us in the usual channels, which is ukleap.org. Uh, that you can find us at ukleap on Twitter and ukleap.org on Facebook. And I've been Jason Reed at Jason Trom. And we're going to do a few varied formats now because we've done, we're established on the live shows and we want to carry on with the live panel discussions. And we really need to thank Tottenham Court Road Waterstones again for hosting us because we so would not be able to do that without them. But we want to make sure that we have some nice, relaxed conversations as well because not everybody wants to be in front of a live audience. So in the coming episodes, we're going to do some more standard podcast chatting. So I hope you can join us for that because I've got some pretty decent guests lined up as well so I think you're going to really enjoy what I've got to say so, but also we want to make sure that you get involved as well so as Rufus said and as Rufus really kind of advocated really is pass the discussion around if, if you if you enjoyed the conversation or if you see a film make a recommendation make sure you get someone else involved in this because without that we're not progressing so thank you so much for the support you're giving and I just need to do a a few quick thank yous as well to Nikki, the producer, producer and sound engineer. I literally would not be able to do this without him. He pretty much is the, the workhorse of Stop and Search. Also need to thank Drew at Let Me Look TV as well, who has been amazing. Drew's going to take care of all our video package, which we're going to be releasing fairly soon as well. So if you come onto our website, ukleap.org, you'll see some unedited live versions of what we've been doing, which... I can tell you there was quite a lot cut out of the Rufus Sound episode, <laughs> which you can imagine. Um, but also we had some audience participation within that as well that we had to lose just for time reasons. But the video we're going to keep unedited, unfiltered, so hopefully again you can enjoy that and pass it around. And I really need to thank Gareth Woods, who I've not thanked before, for doing our intro music, which I personally love because it's really lovely and tongue-in-cheek and cheeky. Um, so yeah, thank you Gareth for doing that, I can't thank you enough. And of course, my name is Ad for doing our Stop and Search podcast artwork. Thank you again for doing that. And I think that's it. I just, I know it's cliche, but I really do need to thank you for listening to it because without you, we would not be doing it. And it's working. And if you can do what Rufus said and pass this around, it really does help. So get involved. Please, if you see a live event coming your way, help out and just attend and send us questions. So yeah, until episode four, this is Stop and Search. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.